Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Thank you, Emily. You guys can grab a seat this morning. I haven't had a chance to meet you. Uh, my name is Ian. I'm one of the pastors here at the King's Church, and it's my honor and privilege to open up God's Word for us this morning. If you are in uh, Kingdom Kids classroom number three, you guys can uh, make the chilly walk, enjoying our uh, brief glimpse of winter here in Florida, uh, back to the uh, classroom. And if you need to refill your coffee or anything, feel free to uh, do so at this time. Uh, We are coming to the uh, end of a a series that we've been walking through since August that we've entitled The uh, Parables of the Kingdom. We've been looking at these uh, parables, these stories of Jesus that he so often uh, taught from and seeing what they teach us about the kingdom that he has already brought and is bringing in its fullness in the future. And to close out our series, there is no other parable to go to than the parable that is found In Luke 15, what has been described as one of the most profound pictures of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have in all of the Bible, and that is the story of the prodigal son. Now, you may have noticed that we uh, intentionally cut off the story. There's more to it that we're going to come back to next week. We're going to spend this week and next looking at this story because uh, it commonly is referred to as the story of the prodigal son, but more accurately, it should be called the parable of the prodigal sons, plural. Because as we're going to see, there are actually two lost sons in the story. One in a very obvious and profound way that we're going to look at today, and one in a much more dangerous and subtle way that we will look at and be challenged by next week. And so this week, we are going to look at the parable of the prodigal son by looking at the younger brother. And really, this story of the younger brother is a story of homecoming, isn't it? Now, I don't know what comes to mind when I say the word home for you, but just think about that for a moment. Where is home for you? You see, I think a lot of us immediately associate a place, a physical location, maybe a city that is far from here, right? Many of you are transplants here to Florida, and the reason why is because this is as bad as our winter gets, right? Amen. Uh, But where is home? What comes to mind when you feel that, when I say that word home? See, for many of us, home kind of evolves over time. Remember, as a kid, I always loved being home. I especially loved, like, summer vacation, right, where you got to spend all day long playing with all of your toys, shooting hoops in the yard, uh, playing outside, hanging out until the sun goes down, and then enjoying just being around your friends and your family. But then something happens to us when we get a little bit older, right, specifically when we get to 10th, 11th, maybe especially 12th grade, right, that longing for something else comes over us, doesn't it? And so many of us leave home and we go somewhere else and we experience something new. And I will never forget when I was in college the feeling of coming home after I've been away. And for me, that was a very good feeling. I don't know about you. Uh, I'm a pretty domesticated guy. Like, I, I cook, I clean, I do my own laundry, like, I'm okay. But there's just something about coming home. 
Right? There's something about coming home and sleeping in on that Saturday and waking up to the smell of bacon, at least in my household. It's just the best kind of alarm clock that there ever was. Uh, getting your clothes washed by somebody who does actually know what they're doing. Uh, being able to sleep in your own bed and not crammed in some dorm twin-size room. And there's something about home, right? There's just a sense of peace, a sense of calm, a sense of this is where I belong. And the story of the prodigal son is a longing for that. It's a longing for home. And I know for many of you here in this room, the concept of home is one that is full of brokenness. It is one that is full of pain. It's full of trauma. It's full of difficulties that maybe were done to you without anything that you've earned in that sense. And so this concept of home is one that I want to explore over these next few weeks. And really, God's inviting us home. He's inviting us to a true and better home than any home that we might have here on earth. And it's when we get home that there's joy to be found. And this morning, as we all are along our journeys in this life, and as we are are searching for answers, as we might have questions about this whole Christianity thing, as we might be longing for a sense of where do I belong, I think the prodigal son is going to draw us up into something glorious as we look at God's word for us. And so this morning, as we look at that third parable in those series of three, here's, I think, the main idea we're going to find. God joyfully runs with mercy to welcome his prodigal children home. Plain and simple, God joyfully runs with mercy to welcome his prodigal children home. As we walk through the story, I want to observe three different points as we go. The first is the simple misery of sin the misery of sin, secondly, the joy of repentance, and then lastly, the celebration of heaven. But before we walk through it, let's take a moment and let's pause and let's pray. And let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the parables and we thank you specifically for this story. This story that is truly unlike any other in this book that you've graciously given us that points us to the heart of the good news that we are clinging to today. So I pray as we examine the story that Jesus tells of this younger son who runs away in search of home, but then is beckoned and called back by a compassionate and gracious father, welcomed into his arms and restored to his place, that you would cause us to be in awe. You would cause us to be stirred up to worship And that in response to your kindness to us in Christ, this undeserved kindness, this ridiculous, over-the-top compassion you have for people who have run away from you, that we would respond with faith and repentance and a renewed sense of where we belong. So Holy Spirit, may you cause that to happen in this place today. Speak through your word. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to comprehend and apply the good news today. We're begging you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's walk through this story beginning in verse 11. Let's begin by looking at the misery of sin and setting the stage here once more. In verse 11, it says this, And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, before we move on, we have to set the context here a little bit to the first century world. Because this parable opens with a picture of a very well-off family. 
as we walk through all the details, they have lots of resources available to them. This is uh, not a low-income family. This is a high-income family. And the, the younger son approaches his father, and he says, Father, I want my share of the inheritance. I want my part of the property that is owed to me. Now, culturally, this was a highly offensive request. This was highly offensive. Here's why. In a family structure like this, the older son was to receive two-thirds of the family inheritance, and the younger son, one-third. Right now, I'm an older son, so I'm cool with that, but that does seem a little odd culturally, right? But there was something about the prized position of being the oldest that brought you that extra third of the portion. But when the younger son comes and he says, hey, I'll go on. I want my portion now. What he essentially is saying is, listen, I know we don't get the inheritance until after you die, but I want it right now. So don't miss what he's communicating. Father, I kind of just wish you were dead. I want my stuff now. And so he, with boldness and with brashness, approaches his father and says, listen, can you go ahead and liquidate your property so I can get the cash that's owed to me, and then I can go and do what I want with it? I mean, do you feel the weight of that request? There's a weightiness to that. There's a brashness. There's a boldness to him saying, I wish you were just dead. Now, this would have been an unthinkable request, but what the father does is even more unthinkable. I mean, we would read this story and assume the father would lash out at his son, maybe even physically. We would be not surprised by that. But just as the younger son breaks customs over and over again, the story, the father does so even more so. You see, the father goes about dividing his property is what the text says. Now, in our world today, we think, okay, cool, he got out the checkbook and he wrote a check. It's not how this works. Now, you see, their livelihood, their well-being was wrapped up in their property. That was their cash assets on hand. And so for the son to come to his father and say, give me my share of the property, here's what that would have meant. The father would have had to then break up his land, divide off his property, sell that property to somebody else, then get the assets of that sale and give it to that younger son. This would have affected the whole household. It would have affected the whole feel of home. All of the other members and servants in this household would be affected by this decision by the younger son, and the father is willing to divide his property. That word property in the Greek, the first time the son asks him, it's his ousia, which literally means his being, his person. The second time he uses it, it's the Greek word bios, where we get biology, the study of life. The son comes to him and says, I need you to divide your being and your life up for me. And the father, shockingly, does so. He does so. He's willing to suffer instead of making his son suffer for this ridiculous request. The father divides up his livelihood for the sake of the selfish ambition of the son. Now, we can't miss what's going on here. The younger son's actions in this story are the very essence of sin put into a story form. You see, sin is essentially this. It is selfishly taking and using the good gifts of our Father as we see fit. It is taking the good gifts that God might give us while rejecting the giver of those gifts. The younger son wants the Father's stuff, but he doesn't want any sort of relationship with the Father. And that is essentially at the heart of sin. Likewise, we take the good things that God has given us, but yet we reject the giver. 
Right? We want the stuff that comes from knowing God and the things that he gives us, but we reject God himself. Here's how Romans 1 puts it more bluntly. Therefore, God gave up humanity and the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You see, each and every single one of us has a worship problem. We worship the creation rather than the creator. And when that sinks deep into our hearts, we start making requests like this. Give me what's owed to me so I can be in control and I can do what I see fit. See, the younger son's request here ought to make us ask some questions of ourselves. How often do we functionally or outright reject God as an authority in our lives? as a good father who wants what's best for us, really just desiring freedom from that. I don't want to be under the shackles and control of this type of authority. I want to go my own way. How often do we implicitly communicate that we don't really want God, we just want the benefits that you might give us? How often do we display an impatience and a distrust in what the Father is calling us to do and instead demand that what is owed to us be paid right now, in this instance. You see, the younger son is teaching us about sin. But as we keep reading, we see that sin always leads to misery. It always leads to misery. Look at verse 13. After the father does this, it says, Not many days later, as in as soon as possible, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So as soon as the son can, as soon as he gets that cash, so to speak, he travels to a far country. And we're not told exactly what the younger son is looking for. And I think that's part of the mastery of Jesus as a storyteller, because I think it's meant to invite us to consider our own desires in the very same way. You see, there is a restlessness that lies deep within each of us, isn't there? There's a restlessness to want to go somewhere else, to try and find that something that we've been looking for. We might not even know what it is we are searching for, but we convince ourselves that it's in this faraway country, so to speak. We're convinced that faithfulness right where we're at is no longer what's best for us. We begin to be increasingly confronted with the heartaches of this life that inevitably come, the disappointments of failed dreams and things that just didn't work out like they were supposed to, We get confronted with circumstances that just don't seem to be changing and are just so difficult. Or, quite frankly, we just get hit by the mundaneness of life. It just feels so boring, so cyclical. It just seems to slog onward in perpetuity. And when we feel this, we begin to ask the question, is this really it? Is this really all I'm supposed to be doing? I mean, there's got to be something better out there for me, isn't there? Something more exciting, something more satisfying, something that will fulfill these deep longings in my soul. See, the younger son got to this point, and he's done waiting around. 
So the minute he gets his stuff, he severs all ties with his family and goes to a faraway place in search of something, in search of happiness, in search of joy, in search of a home, something that wasn't being fulfilled right where he was. But tragically, Jesus says he squanders it all in reckless living. That word reckless is where we get the idea of prodigal from. It's wasteful living. In some ways in our culture today, this would be the equivalent of a lot of people's views of the college campus, right? I did campus ministry for a few years. If you haven't been there in a while, this is it. Right? I want my stuff. I want my freedom. I'm going to go and I'm going to live it up for these four plus years and really enjoy myself, looking for these great experiences, free from the shackles of control of my family and society, on and on it goes. But here's the thing. Sin always overpromises and it always underdelivers. It always overpromises and it always underdelivers every single time. This running away in this fashion leaves him in a destitute place. It is far worse than if he had just stayed at home, even disgruntled. I mean, look at the description that Jesus gives. The younger son's actions, I think, lead us to see three things about sin. The first thing we see about sin is that it is addicting. You see, this younger son spends and spends and spends on reckless living until it's all gone. It's not the famine that caused that reckless living. It was all gone, and then the famine came. He spends and he spends. He keeps on spending in chase of whatever that something is. And this reckless and extravagant spending leaves him broke. He runs out of money. He has to know he's running out of money. He was probably given a massive sum, but yet he keeps on spending. It's like he is addicted to it. And then secondly, we see that sin's not only addicting, it becomes enslaving. He becomes so stuck in this way of living that sin has quite frankly become his master. He becomes a servant to it, which leads him to literally hire himself out as a servant. Jesus is trying to say, wake up and see what sin does. He offers himself to be hired by some Gentiles in a foreign country. And it's not just that he gets hired, he gets hired to feed the pigs. Pigs were one of the most unclean animals in Judaism. But yet he hires himself out, he becomes a servant to it. This is precisely what Jesus warns in John chapter 8, isn't it? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We see it in the story form right here. So sin is addicting, Sin is enslaving, and then lastly, sin is unfulfilling. Maybe this is the most twisted part of sin. We think sin is going to fill that longing, that sense of wandering, that sense of there's got to be something else out there. When we turn to sin, it leaves us more empty than we could ever imagine. He's longing, he's yearning, he's desiring so strongly to be fed by the pods of the most unclean animal in Judaism. He is completely empty. He is unfulfilled. A famine comes. He's in need of the basics of human existence, and sin cannot give it to him. He longs for the food of the pigs. You see, this is a haunting picture of running away towards sin. Here's how the philosopher James K. A. Smith describes this, this nasty cycle that sin brings up in our lives. He says, insofar 
is I keep choosing to try and find that satisfaction that we all long for in finite, created things. Whether it's sex or addiction or beauty or power, I'm going to be caught in a cycle where I'm more disappointed in those things and yet more and more dependent on those things. I keep choosing things with diminishing returns. And when that becomes habitual and eventually necessary, then I forfeit my ability to choose. The thing has me now. Jesus says, I say to you, those who make a practice of sinning are enslaved to sin. The more that we try to fill that longing deep in our souls with finite things, with sinful pursuits, with the good life, however our culture might describe it, while running away from our father at home, we will end up just like the younger son. So, brothers and sisters, those of you here this morning, where do, your, where do you see your own heart in this? Where are we chasing after the faraway country, away from home? And the question I have for you, is it delivering on its promises? Are you really satisfied? Are you really happy with what you found? Has the running and the constant being on the road actually given you a sense of home, or has it left you more lost than where you began? And for some of you in this room, you can be running without actually physically leaving. Right? You can be daydreaming about what else is out there and fail to be present in what God has called you to right now. Where do you see this in your own life? Because here's the thing, God's grace tracks down this younger son, but it only happens when he comes to himself. And that's where the text will go next. Let's look at the joy of repentance. The turning point is right here in verse 17. It says, when he came to himself, when he had a light bulb moment, so to speak, when all of a sudden he's sitting there in the pig field looking at the food of the pigs and saying, wait a minute, this isn't how it has to be. He comes to himself and he says, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? He realizes, I don't have to keep doing this. After all, at the bare minimum, I could have some food. I mean, I could go back home and get some food from my father's house. You see, this realization is the grace of God in his life. For the prodigals who are running Coming to yourself, coming to the end of your sin, is one of the biggest graces that God could ever give you. To so open your eyes and see, man, I'm stuck. This is enslaving. It is unfulfilling. This can't be what I was looking for. And by the way, God's sovereignty is all over this parable. He causes the younger son to come to himself. He causes the younger son, he allows him to run out of money, become broke. Right? He causes a famine to take place. Then he runs out of food, and he finally lets the addicting, enslaving, unfulfilling nature of sin be felt in its entirety. And these circumstances place this younger son down the path of repentance. But he doesn't yet get it. His repentance at this point is still incomplete. It's short-sighted. It's a false repentance. Look at what he says in verse 18. He came to himself and then he says, I will arise, I will go to my father. And then I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Therefore, treat me as one of your hired servants. You see what he proposes? He turns back, he's ready to sort of grovel his way back into the household. 
I mean, he can picture the response that's coming after all, can't you? He's going to walk back with shame, his head hung very low to his house to face the music. He's already preparing himself for the talks of, we told you so. It's funny to see you back here, isn't it? Is this really what you wanted? But here's why his repentance is incomplete at this point. He pictures that response coming, that sort of skeptical, side-eyed look at, you've cost us a lot here, and now you just showed up and you're back? He anticipates that coming, and he says, all right, I'm not going to try to go back as a son, I'm going to go back as a servant. So I'm going to go back, and I'm going to work my way back into the Father's good graces. He realized he squandered the status of son. That ship has already sailed. So therefore, treat me as a servant. Hire me as an employee. I will work until whatever debt might be there can be paid back. But here's the problem. Don't forget the thing that's driving him home. It's not anything to do with the father. It's not anything to do with his family. What's driving him home is bread. He's hungry. You know when he starts invoking sin? After he realizes, I can get some bread at home. Like, I'm not here trying to eat from the pigs, but my father's got all sorts of bread. You see, in this moment, the the tragedy of what sin has done to him is it so warped his view of home that he still just wants the father's stuff. You see that? He doesn't want the father. He wants the father's stuff to go and spend it as he sees fits, and now he just wants the father's bread. And maybe while he's at it, he can pay back some of the money. But he's not yet focused on the father. He's starving to death, and he says, I will go home. But then we get to verse 20. And verse 20 is one of the most beautiful summaries of the good news of the gospel that we have in the whole Bible. If you pay attention to anything at all this morning, it's this moment right here. Look at verse 20 with me. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Let's look a little closer here. The first thing he does is it says when the the son's going back that while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. What does that tell us about the father? The father is looking for the son. The father is looking for the son. You can see the scene that's being painted here, right? The father finishes his hard work for the day He grabs his beverage of choice, and then he goes to the front porch, and he looks off into the distance. Surely, in this moment, he is hoping against hope itself. Family members are probably looking at the father going, man, why are you even bothering? They're probably even upset he's doing this, if we're being honest. He's cost us so much. We've had to sell off half of this property, a third of this property now. We've got some strangers living nearby. He's caused all of this harm. He doesn't deserve you looking for him. But yet there is the father while he's a long way off who sees him. Who sees him. But he doesn't just see him. He felt compassion. There's our favorite Greek word, splognon. Keep showing up in these parables. right? He feels so deeply within himself this compassion. He looks at his son's shame, his head hung low, his rehearsing of his get-back-into-servant-status speech, and he feels compassion. His heart goes out to him. His pain becomes my pain. That's compassion. He doesn't feel anger. 
He doesn't feel like this is the time where justice can be served. No, he feels compassion. And then as that compassion, true compassion always does, it stirs him to action. The father gets up from his front porch and he runs. And he embraces him and he kisses him. Now we don't think anything of this, but for a father to run, for an old man to run somewhere would have been viewed as shameful. You see, children ran and played. You know who embraced and kissed? Mothers. But this father, wearing his robes, has to gird them up, so to speak, in an uncomfortable and embarrassing way, and runs. He runs to meet his younger son. See, the son's not ready to deal with his shame yet. He wants to grovel his way back in, but the father, to his own shame, runs after his son. Love Spurgeon. Here's what Spurgeon says. The prodigal son was resolved to come, yet he was half afraid. But we read that the father ran. Slow are the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. Though the father was out of breath, he was not out of love. Gosh, I wish Spurgeon was still alive. That's a gold, isn't it? (laughs) Slow are the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. The Father runs after us when we are just slowly plodding our way back, like, how am I going to make up for this mess? No, the Father runs, and the younger son is completely taken aback. Look at verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son, Full stop. Brothers and sisters, that is repentance. That is repentance. He doesn't begin to try to work his way back into something. He doesn't get into the whole speech he has planned. He is so swept up by the compassion and the love of his father that he just says, I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy to be back. I've sinned before God and before you. And he stops. That is repentance. If the father didn't greet him in this way, surely he would have broken into his speech. Surely, if he had to go all the way to the front porch, he would have spit out his best explanation. After all, he's coming from a faraway country. He's had time. He's had reps. He's had practice. This is how I can craft this exactly how I want, how I can show emotion to get back in. He had time to rehearse it, but he doesn't get into all of that. You see, the circumstances of his story put him on the path to repentance. But it is not until an encounter with the love of God that he truly repents. It's not until he feels the love of a father running after him that he finally just says, I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy of this. See, brothers and sisters, repentance cannot fully happen in our lives until we are completely overwhelmed by the love of our Father. I have referenced this verse 20 times in this parable series, but Romans 2.4 reminds us that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not our repentance that leads to God's kindness. It is God's kindness towards us in Jesus Christ that allows us to say, I've sinned before heaven and before you. It is God's kindness. It is being wrapped up in his love that makes this repentance just flow out of him naturally. Now, let's take a step back for a moment. 
Remember the context here. It's Luke 15. I had Emily read all the way through from 1 to 24. Here's why. Remember in verse 1. What's the scene here? We have these tax collectors, these sinners who were drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes, the extra super religious holy people. Right? They're looking at this scene and grumbling. They're groveling. Oh, look at this man. How dare he receive sinners, nevertheless, to eat with them. Right? He's upset about, they're upset about his acceptance of sinners. And then Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Then he actually tells three stories, kind of four stories if we're being honest. We come back next week. And the point of this story is essentially this. I'm going to set up this character that is so sinful. Like, you won't even imagine what kind of cultural norms this figure is going to break. I mean, he is offensive to his father, he's offensive to God, he's offensive to his country, and then he comes groveling home, and you can see the Pharisees are like, all right, this guy's going to get what he's deserved, right? And then Jesus makes it the biggest reconciliation story. That joker is met with utter grace and mercy, and he's looking right at the Pharisees as he tells this story. You see, Jesus has just casted the most sinful character he can come up with and said, he is not beyond the love of the Father. He is not beyond the love of the Father. The Father, in fact, is willing to shamefully run after him for an embrace. Here's how James K. Smith describes this once more. He says, the wayward son is not defined by his prodigality, but by the welcome of his Father, who never stopped looking who is ever scanning the distance and who runs to gather him up in an embrace. God is not tapping his foot judgmentally inside the door as you sneak in, crawling over the threshold in shame. He's the father running towards you, losing his sandals on the way, his robe spilling off his shoulders with a laughing smile whose joy says to you, I can't believe you came home. This is what grace looks like. That's is the good news of the gospel. No one is beyond the love of a father. But the story doesn't even end there. I mean, that's glorious enough, isn't it? But it doesn't stop there on the road. Look at verse 22. You get the celebration of heaven here. He encounters him on the road, verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. See, this is the third parable that Jesus has told. The first two tell us the main idea. Right? First, we have the parable of the lost sheep. It's 100 sheep, and they realize one is lost. So the shepherd goes to the open country. He finds it. He throws it on his shoulders, which is not like an, it's an impressive feat. It's a long walk back home on his shoulders and gets home and he gathers his friends and his neighbors. Look at verse 6 and 7. And he says, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And he says, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then he goes on to the parable of the lost coin. Woman has 10 coins, she loses one, she searches everywhere, right? It was probably like not under the, the seat cushion, but like up under it and in between two others, right? You know how you always lose your remote down there? 
I'm a very type A person. Like when I, when I get home, like the keys go here, the wallet goes here, everything has its place. Now with children, nothing has a place, right? So when I find something that I've lost, I'm like, praise God, right? Here it is. There's an excitement. There's a joy. And she feels the same way. She says, rejoice with me. I've found the coin that I've lost. Just so I tell you there's a joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Are you getting the main idea? There's a lost sheep. There's a lost coin. They're found and there's rejoicing. Only now it's not a sheep. It's not a value. Like a coin, it's a son. It's a daughter. Right? My son or my daughter who was lost is now found. They are home and this excitement, it spills over into a party. It spills over into a celebration. You see, the son's restoration doesn't stay on the road. Because here's what could have happened. The father could have gone out there, greeted him, hugged him, embraced him, and then as they're making the walk back, he says, all right, well, we've got some work to do, don't we? Come back to his family who are looking at him like, I mean, I'm glad you're alive, but man, really? Now, the father won't have that. It says, quickly bring the road. He wants no part of it. He says, before anybody gets any thoughts, get the robe. Right? Before anybody can complain or grumble or act like these Pharisees towards this younger son of mine, go and get the robe. Right? He calls for a massive party to be thrown. Look at the language that's used. That robe would have been the father's best robe. It would have been the one that he broke out at Thanksgiving or Christmas and sat himself at the head of the table and said, let's eat. That's the robe, and he puts it on his son. He puts the ring on his finger. This is most likely the signet ring, a symbol of trust that the son can conduct business on behalf of the family. It would seal family purchases. He puts the ring on his finger. He puts shoes on his feet. This is maybe the most dignifying act of all, signifying that he is a son and not a servant. You see, people walk around barefoot as a sign of shame, disgrace, or enslavement. You remember in elementary school when you would go like shoe shopping right before school came back in? Anybody remember this? It's good times, right? You go and you pick out that fresh pair of Nikes that would look good for approximately 24 hours before recess, right? You throw those things on, you show up to school, and you are feeling good, right? Even though your parents spent all the money and put that on your, sh- on your feet, you're like, man, look at these Nikes. Look how cool I am, right? The son is wearing the sandals. He's been restored to his position. Listen to how Henry Nouwen describes this scene. He says, not only does the father forgive without asking questions and joyfully welcomes home his lost son, but he cannot wait to give him new life, life in abundance. So strongly does God desire to give life to his returning son that he seems almost impatient. Nothing is good enough. The very best must be given to him. While the son is prepared to be treated as a hired servant, the father calls for the robe reserved for a distinguished guest. And although the son no longer feels worthy to be called the son, the father gives him a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet to honor him as his beloved son and restore him as the heir. And then he kills the fattened calf. That would feed a hundred people. The story says this man has two sons. You know what that means. Get everybody together. Get the neighborhood together. Invite all the people that we know and come and celebrate. 
the fattened calf was reserved for only the special of occasions. I mean, it'd be when like a royal dignitary came through your area, you killed the fattened calf. The wedding of the oldest son, you killed the fattened calf. But now, this son who went and squandered everything, in shame walks home, the father greets him with love, and he says, we're killing the fattened calf. It's time to celebrate. This is a party. Imagine the son here. He's been to the lowest of the low, and all of a sudden he finds himself robed in his father's nicest gown, sitting at the seat of honor, restored to his position, with a bunch of people there to celebrate, all because he simply came home. All because he came home. And here's the thing, the Bible and Jesus continually talk about heaven, and they continually talk about what awaits us in these exact terms. A joyful banquet, a giant celebration, a party with all of our closest family and friends where no one's looking at their watch wondering when this thing's going to end. Jesus keeps talking about the kingdom as if it were this giant party. And we've seen it in the parables, haven't we? How many of them deal with a wedding feast? He says, my kingdom is going to come and it's going to be like this party. But that's nothing new. In the Old Testament, you know how the people of Israel remembered God's past faithfulness? Feasts. Celebrations. They would get together and they would eat good food, drink good wine, and remember God's faithfulness and be thankful for it. Then we get to the prophets. Isaiah 25 promises this, looking at Mount Zion. He says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of morrow and of aged wine well refined. He says, listen, this party is going to happen. All the nations are going to be invited, and we're going to have the best food and the best wine there. Then this long-awaited Savior comes on the scene, and he keeps talking about the kingdom of God in the very same way. And all of that is setting the stage for Revelation 19 where John is given a vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That Lamb who was slain, but rose again and now is returning for his bride. And he says, let's feast and enjoy. Luke 15, verse 1 tells us, the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling at Jesus. This man receives sinners and eats with them. To eat with somebody meant intimacy. It meant hospitality. It meant not entertaining, but I am welcoming the other into my home and into my life. And Jesus looks at them, hearing their grumbling about him eating with sinners, and says, if you think it's bad right now, just wait till you see what this kingdom is in its fullness. You know what the kingdom is in its fullness? Jesus receiving sinners and eating with them. For all of eternity. Every time we get a glimpse of that right now, every time we enjoy the fellowship between brothers and sisters in Christ, every time we eat good food to the worship of God and and drink whatever beverage you might like to the glory of God, it's a foretaste of glory. It's a celebration. It is a party. So listen, two things here to leave you with. Number one, if you are the prodigal, If you are the younger son, if you are in search of something that you have not yet found and you are squandering, you are spending, and you are stuck, the party happens because he just turns around. He just goes home. You don't have to work your way back in. You don't have to hire yourself out as a servant. 
Your father is ready to meet you right there running towards you with mercy, with grace, and with compassion. Listen, if you are the prodigal, what if you just went home? What if you went home today? Your father is there to greet you. I know the road home can be full of uncertainties. It can feel long. You can think there's no way I'm going to be welcomed back after all I've done. I'm not even sure if this is where I'm supposed to be. And the father says, don't worry about that. Just come home. Come home. So if that's you, I beg you, come home this morning. And if you're here and you've already come home, you've been overwhelmed by the Father's love, are you celebrating? Are you celebrating that your lostness has been found in Jesus? Are you experiencing the joy that there's a banquet table before us, that an eternity of heaven rejoicing awaits us, and that we can get in on that right now? We can get in on that right now. We see dimly right now, we celebrate dimly right now, but we still see, and we still celebrate. We link arms one another, we say, looking at Christ, that this is what I'm living for, this is where life is found, this is where real life is found. Not in running away towards some pursuit, towards something else, but are you joyfully in the Father's house celebrating? Listen, the way that you and I are brought back to the Father's house is by the Son of God, Jesus himself, going to a faraway country. And he squanders all that he has, but he does so in righteousness, so that those of us who have run away might come home and be co-heirs with him. We are sons and daughters of a father who is dying to kill the fattened calf for us and celebrate. So this morning, come home, and if you're there, let's celebrate, let's rejoice, and let's be thankful. For those of us who were lost have been found. Those of us who were dead have been made alive in Christ. Let's pray.